Welcome to the Ward by Ward podcast, Chicago's first and only independent source for political analysis. I'm your host, Joe Miller. Join me as we travel this great city and dig deeper than the press conferences and talking points. Optimists beware, the truth is coming. This week of the podcast is very uh, near and dear to me. Um, if you don't know me or have or haven't heard my wild stories, I am a veteran. I served eight and a half years active duty Air Force. I joined right after September 11th, and you know I did it for for Chicago. Essentially, I seen how it got shut down, and uh, after September 11th attacks, and you know I wasn't going to fight any religious war or, you know, one based on ideals is just basically for Chicago. But in that, in that opportunity, uh, serving the country, got to go around the world twice, got to experience things that, you know, people I grew up with never will. Um, my family members, all that stuff like that. So we have the opportunity to speak to a veteran, listen to them. And we're doing a veteran episode today. I got two of my friends here. They're doing amazing things because when you te- technically think of a veteran, especially the way nonprofits, news agencies, sports teams, whatever, they want to portray us as this community that's struggling with drugs and alcohol, mental health, all sorts of stuff like that. The things that plague you know, society as a whole is very specific only to veterans. And it's kind of, it's not authentic enough for me. And I, I think that more veterans need to speak up. So in the day and age of activism and, you know, nonprofit groups that are, you know, deciding what are the talking points for a community. I thought it was beneficial to bring in two veterans that are doing, you know, great things in the community. So without further ado, I want to introduce my friend Carlos and Paul. Carlos, please say hi to everybody. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Carlos Luna. I am a active advocate for community issues, uh, specifically uh, veteran issues. Uh, my motto is that uh, the veteran community isn't isolated to one corner of the country. It's woven into every corner of the country um, because that's what my experience was like in the Navy. I served from 2004 to 2009, and I met people from every walk of life you can imagine, from you know people from North Carolina that were upset that they couldn't ride a lawnmower to uh, the the 7-Eleven in California to, um, you know, people from uh, Los Angeles and New York and all the small towns in between. And Mm -hmm. uh, really, uh, one of the things that um, was evident to me was that a lot of their struggles were the same as the struggles that we had here in Chicago. They just looked a little different. So, um, I, I worked with, uh, I worked on F-18 Super Hornets and I was a Navionics technician there. Um, I, uh, did deploy uh, to the Persian Gulf and did circle eights around there for, uh, seven months and, uh, ensured that, you know, the troops on the ground were given air support and uh, refueling and reconnaissance and all of the stuff that went into um, the war. Yeah. The war av- the avionics for our listeners who are not used to that term. <laughs> what is an avionics? So avionics is basically all of the uh, computerized equipment that make a airplane 
fly. Yeah. Um, so everything from radar to navigation systems, communication systems, weapon systems on on a ground on the fighter, um, electronic countermeasures, uh, reconnaissance pods, FLIR, uh, all of that. Mm-hmm. And FLIR is forward-looking infrared. Bam! Got it before I even asked. Look at that. Awesome. <laughs> Paul, oh, that's great, great. First, uh, Joe, thanks for inviting me. This is incredible to be around a, um, you know, a group of folks who are really doing some great things in the community and also doing some great things, um, I think, for veterans, too. Um, so as you said, my name is Paul. Um, I'm a, so currently for my current job, I'm the state coordinator for Caring Across Generations. And so we are a national movement of family caregivers, aging Americans and people with disabilities who are working to transform the care system. And so what does that mean? So transforming the care system means um, expanding access to long term care, um, increasing wages for home care workers and supporting policies that increase um, resources to people with disabilities as well as family caregivers. And so that's what I do with my, with my current full time job. Um, <clears throat> prior to that, I spent um, nine years in the Army National Guard. Uh, four of those years were active. I had one tour in Afghanistan and I got out in 2014. Um, I've got five MOSs and left as a staff sergeant. And so I had some great experiences and met some folks who I think have become lifelong friends and um, family, family that I hold really dear to my heart. So um, since when I left in 2014, um, I started working on a number of Chicago um, and Cook County political campaigns. And so um, I got a lot of experience working on automatic races and um, Chicago mayoral races and uh, Cook County wide races. So um uh, after that, I worked on a few, um, I organized with some local um, groups um, around specific issues that were facing, um, at the time I lived in Kennewood. And so there were some issues of, um, facing the, the local neighborhoods in Kennewood. And so uh, I think that, you know, a, few, a couple of things, I want to mention a, a few things here. One thing that's dear to me is that um, I think that we need to work with uh, communities to push civic engagement. I think that we're at an all-time low um, in uh, groups and uh, people and having, you know, faith in the government, faith in your local state office. And so I really believe that we got to push civic engagement. Um, another side project I'm working on with a few partners is the Black Voters Project. And so the Black Voters Project is an initiative that'll take a in-depth study of the Black community to find out what people in communities of color want. So the politics of Black voters are stereotypically assumed to be like the same and share the same race-based route, right? But, you know, when you think about it, given the the recent jump in Black political participation, you know, with all the movements that are happening and seemingly this race-based partisan nature of how the Black vote is supposed to go, I think it's important that we investigate what factors drive Black voter turnout as well as what what factors um, contribute to the partisan nature of Black voters, and so, and then lastly, um, uh, I think, again, another really serious issue that I think that it's facing us in our time right now is race relations and racial justice, right? How do we solve the divide that has existed for so long in this country? And I think we are now at a tipping point where we really have to think about what is it going to take to to come to some reconciliation as a country and come together and unite and kind of and eventually solve these the, the race issues that are, that we're still struggling with. So, agreed. I'll stop there. No, and, and <laughs> well, just to kind of like jump off there, and I'll give my my, I guess synopsis of my military experience. Mm-hmm. And veterans are 
can be very beneficial to that because in the civilian sector, if you've just lived here in the city of Chicago, Chicago is very segregated, as we all know. The moment you leave Chicago, it's either, you know, it's black, white or brown or Asian, whatever. They're very hyper that mm -hmm. uh, whatever it may be. But when you're in the military, there was a dude and when I was in basic military training. Um, one guy was up from Vermont, but from like the sticks of Vermont and never participated or engaged with a person of African descent before until wow. he went to yep. basic training. He was just that far in the sticks. He was that dude that was riding the lawnmower, <laughs> you know, to get That's his, yeah. his PBRs or natty lights or whatever. So. A PBR is good, by the way. <laughs> to each its own, to each its own. Um, but, you know, when you go to basic military training and for us, you know, we get a lot of, you know, slack because it's the air force. It's not like the Marines or army or whatever like that. Uh, I went through a six week boot camp. Um, or basic military training. It's not boot camp no more. It's not politically correct to call it that, whatever. Anyway, but you have, we had 60 guys in our flight that were being trained uh, once in the most, you know, in a very stressful environment. Mm -hmm. And despite of whatever your racial prejudices are, wherever you're from, you know, from, you know, being from the United States or being a, you know, recent immigrant that's serving a, a country they want to be a part of, mm -hmm. they're thrown in together and have to work together as a team. All that stuff has to be put together or put away. Yep. So I think veterans can lead that. But and another thing you brought up too was, you know, the black community and what they want is they're being politically active. And mm -hmm. it's kind of funny because when you look at a lot of the nonprofits or political action groups, they're founded by a majority of white board members, um, all their, you know, regional campaign staff managers are all white and they're out there telling mm -hmm. people, this is the black community. Here are the issues that you're going to fight for, not go fight. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's, that's how me and Paul, uh, in, uh, you know, disc, you know, work, interact outside of the podcast and mm -hmm. veteran stuff. But for me, I served eight years. I did, I was a plumber. Essentially. I was a union carpenter right after high school. Um, everyone was going to college and I said, well, if everyone's going that direction, you know, I got to do something else. You know, it's just that whole don't follow the flock kind of like thing. Mm -hmm. So I went to the trades as a union carpenter. Summer 11th happened. And I was at like 18 years old, making almost 30 bucks an hour, living at home with my mom. Dude, I was bringing home 1200 bucks after taxes at 18 years old, loving life. Mm -hmm. Summer 11th happens. City shuts down, right? I've never seen like that before. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, my ex-wife woke me up. Because my daughter, she was breastfeeding my daughter at the time. And she was like, we're going to war, we're going to war. And I was just off work that day. And I remember walking into the front room and seeing, you know, the plane going into the Pentagon. Mm -hmm. And I was like, holy crap. You know, and then looking at my ex-wife and the kid, it was really one of those, like, things that, you know, you should do with something. But I'm not a war fighter. So I was like, hey, um, put me in. But let me use what God's given me the talent of is using my hands. Put me in some position of, you know, I can do that. So. Yep. Um, they made me a plumber in the Air Force's best decision. So that was actually pretty good. I didn't like plumbing, but now I do love it. So served, uh, did that for like three years. And after that, deployed twice in those three years, um, came back home and missed already a year of my three-year-old daughter's life. And I wanted to grow up with them a little bit more. So became a recruiter, was out in the southwest side of the city, or not southwest side, but southwest suburbs, Chicago Heights, Fort Heights. My office was in Chicago Heights. And started seeing the, um, you know, like edu un the uneven and uneducational funding this the state has. So that really oh, started yeah. pushing me towards, you know, finding out why this was happening. You know what I mean? Yep. And th that's when that, that whole snowball thing came down. But tonight mm -hmm. for the episode, I, I, like I said, you know, want to talk about some of these 
veteran issues, because like I said, there's political action groups that are out there right now that are advocating for veterans, but everyone who's like leading that charge is not a veteran. Mm -hmm. They don't want to include veterans to speak. They're basically, they're being utilized um, so that they can push, you know, whatever agenda it is. And then you, it's really hard to, oh, once you include veterans, you know, they kind of, it's hard for someone to disagree with that stuff. Right. Right. Um, so it's, you, you know, tokenism, if you want to call it that, I'm not sure. But mm-hmm. one of the first things I want to talk about was the veteran suicide. Yep. So veteran suicide, everyone has heard 22 a day. Like it's all over this social media platform. They have all these events, fundraisers. You know, you buy a sweater, this goes to some kind of charity, whatever. Like that. But that number is flawed. Mm-hmm. It's not 22. <laughs> um, and this is the problem that I have with it because I'm like, there, there's just no way for us. Right. So the VA lowered that number recently. Oh, um, they did. They didn't like, I think last year they came out with something saying it was 20 a day. So, um, one less, yeah. two, yeah, two less. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this is the jacked up thing about it. Okay. So I'm going to, there's a back in February 4th of 2015, the Washington post put out a, mm-hmm. an article. It's called the missing context behind the widely cited statistic that there are 22 veterans a day. Go on your Google machine, look up this article, and this is flawed because they came up with this 22 a day. They took only 21 states, mm-hmm. pulled, you know, all the suicides or whatever. And these are veterans that are in the system, not in the systems. Uh, the deported veterans, Carlos can jump in on that topic later. And they excluded Texas and California, which have the largest veteran base in the nation. So you came Same. out with a number and exclude the largest veteran population, and then you only did 21 states of the 50, not including the territories, and then what happens to veterans once they get deported? Well, I mean, even then, uh, they're only counting the veterans who are at their facilities. Yes. Right? right? So how many veterans actually uh, get serviced by the VA? I right. mean, it's missing so many just, just with that alone. And then part of it is you have to register. So if you, don't, mm-hmm. if you, if you leave the service, so there's no connection, there's no transition of, of administrative files regardless of which um, uh, branch you're serving, you have to physically go and register with the VA. And if you don't do that, you'll never be counted as a veteran. Right. And so there's that, you know, there's that gap of folks who just don't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So we don't know what the actual numbers are. Right. And additionally too, there's, so during the Reagan periods, there was, I have a, a buddy of mine when I was stationed at Eglin Air Force Base, he was a Coastie or a Coast Guard. And he served during the Reagan periods, or I can't remember what year is, but there was not an active combat so he can't even, even though he served six years, I think it was active duty, he cannot wow. get benefits because there was no active combat, mm-hmm. even though Reagan was feeling Contra and all this other stuff mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. flooding our streets with crack cocaine, right? you know, all those good things. But anyway, so there's more context. And then you have a lot of people just say, I'm a veteran. You gotta, it's, it, there's a specific definition of it. Mm-hmm. And then if you qualify for it, then mm-hmm. if you actually go seek treatment, then there's that number. Was even more disturbing about this. The individual who is in charge of the veteran, I don't know if she still is, uh, of the veteran program for suicides or whatever. Since she took, I guess, office or the position, veteran suicides are just skyrocketing. And I don't know if it's because you're putting light to it and people are starting to notice it now, but it just Mm -hmm. kept going up. Shocking thing, I heard her on an NPR podcast where she originally was working in the the Denver VA, uh, I can't remember what the name of the hospital. She was working there, interned. Prior to that, she never met a veteran in her life wow. before taking this inter- internship, right? No one in the family, no nothing. She gets, the, the, you know, the intern job. She start w- working her way up as a social worker. And then they put her in charge of this 
veteran suicide, you know, thing that they're the VA try to, you know, kick out and, and bring the numbers down. And ever since she started the program, the numbers just keep going up. Mm-hmm. So what did the VA do? They moved her to Washington and gave her a bigger pay raise. <laughs> and of course. Yeah. And then once this article came out that these numbers are wrong, and I try to tell people that, like, you know, the, the, what pisses me off, and I'll let you guys jump in on this. Someone sat in a room and decided 22 was an acceptable number that, you know, that it's going to create mm-hmm. some kind of outrage, but it's not going to be like shocking to the system. So what was that process about? You know what I mean? I don't mm-hmm. know. So if you guys want to, do you guys want to weigh in on that or your thoughts? I mean, there's just so much to, to touch on that. I, I think that, um, you know, putting a light on the full scope of the problems only brings more attention to the limitations that exist within uh, the systems that um, say they serve this, these populations. And it's not specific to the veteran population. We could juxtapose the veteran suicide rate in the VA system with, you know, mis- and undereducation in our school system. Yeah. You know, it's, it's become, and I can only speak on, you know, my experiences with it, but it's almost like passing the buck off to society, right? Where it's like, well, we take care of our population, our veterans. Um, there must be something else. And so let's address our problems and not worry about the others when there's yeah. so many things that are that are related to that. Um, no, no, absolutely. I, you know, it, it's personal for me. You know, it, it, four people that I personally know, um, uh, two of which actually veterans, two committed suicide successfully. Another one, uh, sorry, yes, two of them committed suicide successfully. Um, another one, very close friend of mine, um, attempted to commit suicide. Um, and ended up not doing it. And then um, another one, uh, again, about under a year ago, uh, tried to commit suicide as well. So it's, and uh, they didn't go to seek help, right? So what, you know, how how do we quantify the number of folks who don't get counted in statistics where you sh- probably should go get help, but you don't, right? And then there's no avenue to make it easy to kind of go and, and and report these things because it's a pri- it's a private thing, right? So I, I think part of it is we got to start with getting some accurate numbers, right? Even in this report, in this Washington Post, uh, um, you know, story, it talks about how they take the total number of U.S. suicides and then they calculate the percentage of veterans that exist and then they calculate the number of suicides based off of that. So no one really knows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So I, we, I think we have to first do due diligence and get some numbers that are correct. Right. We need to really, I think we need to start with a few things. We've got to make it all right for uh, people who are veterans who need help, right. To go and seek it. They always talk about these 1-800 numbers and whatnot, but people don't do it that way. Like the people who tried to commit suicide called me like, Hey, I got a gun to my head. That's how it was. It's, it was real. And so it, it, people make this stuff personal. You got to be able to figure out how we can create a, a culture that allows people to be able to talk about these things in a way that is uh, productive to getting them treated for those kind of issues. And so I think we got to start there. 
and mental health, like if any, if you listen to any of the podcasts before, I'm, I'm I was diagnosed with PTSD, post traumatic stress disorder, in 2013, and I'm very open about it because we don't talk about it as much, especially from a male standpoint. I don't know what happened with the baby boomers, but they came in with this, you know, you suck up your feelings, you know, like that kind mm-hmm. of mentality. Yep. Um, and in my readings, especially like with Marcus Aurelius, uh, Marcus Aurelius or any of the old Stoics, like guys who actually like physically went to war, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. they took a sword and walked up to another individual and stabbed them with it right. versus, you know, shooting someone or an explosion. I think <laughs> that it's completely different combat, but mm-hmm. in their writings, those old, you know, warriors <coughs> discuss their feelings. They discussed what they seen in a battlefield, mm-hmm. but somewhere and then even as you follow it and stuff like that, and you go through the histories or whatever, somewhere during, you know, the, you know, the World War II, World War One era, mm-hmm. you know, because the U.S. has been f- tracking uh, mental health issues since the Civil War. You know, they've called PTSD shell shock. You know, um, they've called it, um, what's it called? Uh, they've even tried people for, you know, um, what's it called? A, what is it when you walk away or being AWOL and stuff mm-hmm. like that because mm-hmm. of, you know, the immense feelings that you're going under, you know, the, yeah. you know, cowardism and some are cowardice, mm-hmm. you know, they're tried as that people lost their benefits if, you know, all kinds of craziness. But anyway, it's being able to talk about it. It's gaining these right numbers. And maybe the, I don't know if this was like the VA doing it or they, I think this number came out. It's only my personal opinion. I think they came out with this number to jump ahead of the, the chaos before it actually happened, before other people started finding out about it. You know what I mean? Because it was just after the veterans, like in, I guess our generation, you know, the suicides were already there in the Vietnam veterans. But what happened to our generation of veterans? Why did this catch the attention? You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Is it the VA trying to polish their image? Because during the 70s, you know, most veterans don't even like going to the hospital because of the stuff they went through in the past. I mean, the, right. the, the VA has done some improvements. I will say that. But at the same time, too, they're still failing in other aspects. Right. So... And, and but that's and that thing that's a, that points to an issue with the VA structure itself. Not to say that it's bad, but when you look at uh, if you talk to anyone who's a veteran from uh, pre nine eleven, right, they tell you how there's a huge backlog of folks who are waiting just to get care and just to be seen. And so, oh yeah, all of their paperwork that they have to have that is required on the administrative side is the difficult part. Mm-hmm. Right. All this cooperating evidence and, you know, where did you get seen and where did this incident happen? That's part of the issue is that tracking uh, uh, soldier care and issues is is something that needs to improve. Right. We have to have a system that transitions from when you leave service to the VA side, because those two sides don't talk. Yeah. If you never take your, your records over to the VA, you'll, they'll never they'll never know. Mm-hmm. And so that that's part of the thing. And so. You know, we just got to do a better job. And, and and I think, you know, like like you said earlier, we have to, if they don't, if they know what the real numbers are, then they have to admit that there's a problem. And so I'm not saying there's a conspiracy to hide the numbers, but when you know that there's a problem, then you have to actually address it. So we know that the problem exists and we have to take a, a really serious look at it. Yeah. And to, you know, jump on your thing, one thing I've talked about to other people is me and Carlos, we've actually talked about this before. We wanted to create some kind of legislation and lobby for this was one of the nights we were out socially. We were just bouncing ideas back and forth to each other. I don't blame him if you don't remember because I remember that night just a little bit as well. But anyway, so the VA tries to be 30 percent veteran um, and your know, veteran employed and stuff like that. I mm-hmm. think there has to be a more, you know, more conservative or more constructive effort to get people in their TAPS meetings when they're mm-hmm. transitioning over mm-hmm. that the VA needs to be recruiting. But then 
And to all my civilian friends that are listening or non-veteran friends, you can't be in charge of our care or tell us how we should feel. And it has to be coming from a veteran's, Mm -hmm. you know, discussion point or some veterans have to be involved in the process. That makes sense. And if you're keeping, you know, majority of veterans who do work for the VA in the most low tiered, I guess, uh, you know, positions like maintenance or housekeeping and stuff like that. And with no real way to climb up, Mm -hmm. um, it it makes it a problem because then you had the individuals, like I, I discussed who never met a veteran in her life. She's running a veteran suicide program. Well, how do you do that? You know, mm-hmm. how did you get there? Wouldn't you think you would have, like for me, you would have a system matter expert, someone who not necessarily was a veteran and try to kill himself or anything or herself, mm-hmm. but, you know, someone who comes from, and I know there's veterans that are in social work. I know that there's people in clinical psychology. I know there's experts that are veterans. Why are they not putting veterans in those positions? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Or making that conservative effort. So the legislation that me and uh, Carlos were talking about was that the VA has to staff at this amount of veterans in this amount, you know, kind of like a pyramid. Like a mandate, right? Yeah, like a mandate, like this mm-hmm. is what it needs to be. Same thing mm-hmm. with another thing we talked about too is defense spending. You know, we can't even get federally funded. Heinz VA was last year $10 million negative in the hole. This oh. year, they're $20 million negative in the hole. Wow. And it just because Congress can't pass a funding bill or anything like that. But they were, that's a, right. yep, they were able to pass $700 billion in defense spending. Another piece of legislation that needs to come up too. There has to be... <laughs> Some kind of formula where if you spend, you know, one dollar on defense, fifty cents has to go to veteran care or something like that. Some kind of because you're making veterans in defense spending, <laughs> well, you know, some kind of money has to come back to I us. I think it should be different, you know, where it's you know, for every fifty cents spent for defense, a dollar for veterans. And okay. really, I mean it's it's um a lot easier to convince a bunch of young guys and, and women to to fight a war. Right. We saw it after 9-11. But when they come back and have to deal with everything that they experienced, whether it's PTSD or moral injury or, you know, TBIs, mm-hmm. uh, loss of limbs, it's going to cost a lot more to treat uh, and, and help that person recover from whatever uh, the residual effects of that are mm-hmm. throughout their lifetime than it did to send them there in the first place. Yes. Um, so I, I think... Um, you know, there, there, there may be uh, some benefits to mandates like that. But then even then, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, the Western uh, approach to medicine, the medical model is more of a, you know, business model. It's about getting people to come back, not to actually heal them. Yeah. Right. We treat symptoms. Yes. Uh, we, we try <laughs> to uh, mask symptoms. We don't really try to eliminate them. Um, and if you look at some of the medications that are uh, distributed, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, the biggest side effects there are suicide, homicide ideations, (laughs) right? So if you're given something, you know, for, let's say you're depressed and anxious, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes those things can be crippling, right? So you go see a therapist, whether it's at the VA or, you know, one of the other uh, organizations that serve the veterans, you know, after a couple months of sitting there talking to these people, they're going to say, hey, you know what? Maybe we should talk about mm-hmm. uh, some medication for you. Yeah. And you look at the side effects of the medication and number one on there is suicide and homicide. It's like, well, wait a minute. Like, that's not one of my symptoms. Yeah. Why right. do you want to throw that in the pot? Yeah. You know, it, it's 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 I think that to talk about the systemic limitations of these systems uh, is good. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's a start. 
But I think we should also talk about the one diagnostic criteria and the treatment of a lot of these things. Because, you know, when it comes to pain management, they were handing out opiates like they were, you know, Motrin in the military. Right. Yeah. Right. Vitamin, now it's like you know, vitamin N for all my veterans listening. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, mm-hmm. they, they were just handing it out. Right. Mm-hmm. And now we now we've got an opiate ep- epidemic. Right. And, yep. and now now it's now it's a problem. But I mean, if they've been doing acupuncture for over 3000 years and they know that, hey, th- this might work. Mm-hmm. Why haven't they uh, expanded their um, attempt at helping? Yeah. Right. I mean, instead of keeping people coming back. Mm-hmm. So to add, if you're not. OK, so I'm not. I rarely I give credit where credit's due. Right. So I'm going to give a shout out to President Trump on this one. So when he came out, I think it was last year, he made the opiate crisis an epidemic in the country with him. And I was like, why is he coming up nowhere with this? And I get it. You know, white people in the communities are finding these drugs and hurting themselves. So now it's a major freaking priority for the country. But anyway, when he said that West Virginia dropped a lawsuit on a company or it's a nonprofit called. Um, oh, my God. Um, I'll think of it in a second. But anyway, it's out of Oak Brook, Illinois. And um, this nonprofit, back in 1953, they were created by a bunch of like hospital, uh, JACO, Joint Commissions, that's what they're called. They're out of Oak Brook, Illinois. So they set up, they're not internationally recognized. Pennsylvania doesn't recognize them. Wisconsin doesn't recognize them. Oklahoma doesn't. Ask anyone in healthcare if they've heard of JACO. And every hospital will freak out. You'll send a staff, you know, like um, shivering because of this. They come in there to inspect your stuff. And if you're not, if you don't get on their list of approved healthcare facilities, you're not going to get this like all-star rating and you're not going to get Medicare or Medicaid payments. This, that, that, that's really all they do. Well, the re- West Virginia, the state is suing JCO to joint commissions because they told, they ad- they went after anyone who said opiates were addictive. You can go to their website now, the Joint Commissions, and they still have leaflets and propaganda that are out there that saying opiates are not addictive. Purdue Pharmaceuticals back in 2003, I think it was, they pled uh, guilty to, you know, this, you know, falsification or not really saying what was wrong with opiates. And they were found guilty to pay all this money, blah, blah, blah. Purdue Pharmaceuticals was hired by Jayco to create this, like, uh, you know, pain management. They try to even say that pain was a f- the fifth vital sign. When you read like the West Virginia's, you know, lawsuit, it is crazy what mm-hmm. they're saying. But this is a, a nonprofit that gets, and this is where I don't understand where people take this them seriously. So they come into your hospital, they say, oh, you're failing here, here, and here. For you to be, you know, up to par, you need to take my class and we'll get you back up there. So that's a conflict of interest almost immediately. They're getting like $60 million a year off these damn classes. So they, and then not only that, the hospital has to pay for them to come and do this inspection. They have to pay for lodging, travel, food, blah, 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 for all these, you know, healthcare professionals. Mm -hmm. And then they come in there and say, well, you suck here, you suck here, you suck here, pay for these classes and you're not going to suck as much. So it's, it's a shakedown in a medical thing. And they're right here in Oak Brook, Illinois. No one talks about them. They are, according to West Virginia, the epicenter for the opiate um, mm-hmm. epidemic. So mm-hmm. Illinois making the news again. But they made the news again recently. In what? 
what is it, top three or number three in corruption, right? What is that? Uh, we're number three, I thought. Or, we, or number three or number Chicago four? Chicago number one. Chicago's the top city for corruption. That's right. It came out in the, I got to quote this so I can get this right. Is it with the Tribune, right? So. Chicago Tribune. So number one in top city in the country for corruption. And then um, Illinois is number three in the country for corruption. And I think this came out of that UIC study that Dick Simpson did, correct? Quote me if I'm wrong. It's he's probably I want to be able to correct it so I don't I don't misspeak. Yeah, that's why we have, and that's another thing too. So, so, every, so there's something called continuing corruption in Illinois. It's off of the um, UIC Political Science College of Liberal Arts website. If you click on that report, and there are there's a lot of information in there. <laughs> And the funny thing, too, is you still have and this is OK. So I'm politically an independent. Anyone who talks to me, they know I am very anti-Democrat machine. I'm very anti. Uh, if you support the party, I'm going to raise an eyebrow at you because this is we've known how corrupt the party is, especially in Chicago, for decades and decades and decades. And then they go through it's, at, it's essentially every 10 to 15 years. They do a rebranding, just like how they're rebranding right now uh, with the progressive movement and trying to just sugarcoat it all like it never happened you know what i mean um but it's still that what's the saying uh if you if you don't learn history you're doomed to repeat it Mm -hmm. but if you and but if you learn history you're doomed to watch everyone else repeat it you know so Mm -hmm. it's one of those oxymorons so yep yep and just to cite it so the the very first page and line of the report says chicago continues to be the most corrupt city in the country and Illinois continues to be the third most corrupt state. This is coming out of the continuing corruption in Illinois report from the UIC, University of University of Illinois at Chicago Department of Political Science. Um, the report just came out on May 15th. So check it out. Yeah, for sure. And I'm going to segue over into our that was our, we you know talking about veteran suicides and we just went down into corruption in Chicago. <laughs> but speaking of corruption. So when I came back from the military, I wanted to, you know, serve, be a public servant. I was at UIC. I was a student of Dick Simpson. And under his internship class, he I wanted to go to work for Joe Ferguson. I love auditing, love reading policy. And he was like, no, go work for Bob Fioretti. He was in the Second Ward at the time. This was like right before the, the first teacher strike uh, happened. So it was like 2011 or whatever it is. Um, I actually found my journal from when I was working in an office, in this public service office. So I really got to see uh, what Chicago politics was firsthand. You know what I mean? And the remap just happened. The election was over. The remap happened. They moved his ward from 16th and state, I think we were on, all the way up mm-hmm. to Old Town. Mm-hmm. So it was pure chaos. Brandon Riley dumped off like 20 constituents and cut their services off. So then they were calling every day, yelling and screaming at us. Because Bob Fieri did this, they went into court because if you're elected for a cycle, you have to represent those constituents no matter what, you know, during that, if it's your rewrap map, or, you know, but, you know, Chicago, they want to take care of their own. They don't give a damn about the others. So, so I got to see the ugliness of corruption there. And one, one of the things where I walked away from the office, I kind of got pissed off about this. So his chief of staff, Tim, C- Tim Stevens said, Hey, I need you to put on a job fair. Not a problem. I was a recruiter. I can throw down. What are my limitations? Don't spend money. Gotcha. <laughs> Easy stuff. Because yeah, in recruiting, you don't get money. So you, know, you get a stress ball. That's about it. But funding, you're not going to get. Uh, so contacted Malcolm X College. They said, cool. 
uh, got in with Rodrigo Garcia for the state of Illinois veteran Department of Veterans, not the federal level veteran affairs, but the state level. He got in. Uh, we had a hiring our heroes, which is funded through the Chamber of Commerce, U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Mm-hmm. They have hiring our heroes. So another thing you have all these like veteran unemployment or veteran job fairs too. That and people were getting their identity stolen because they want your name, social security number, address on there. And then you had these like fly by night companies setting up, doing these job fairs, stealing people's information, selling it off on the black web. And not, you know, there was nothing. So contacted hiring our heroes and they hold. So if they have, let's say Boeing or Caterpillar or whatever come in, they say, hey, well, we have, you know, three or four positions. We're gonna hold a job fair. And then six months after the job fair, they have to say if they hire the person who they interviewed, you know, those kind of things. There's actually a tracking method in there. And they bring in all the support for it. They bring all the funding for it, all that stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I even had a damn flyover scheduled. They had a, contacted a military museum up north. I want to say it was like close to the border of Wisconsin. I can't remember the name. This was years ago. Uh, they were going to do a flyover. We had the Great Lakes Navy Band that was going to come down to the national anthem, had the school that was going to do it. So if we had to be outside or inside, we can do it. Uh, using Rodrigo Garcia, we were able to uh, pinpoint veterans in the second ward. Uh, and then if we didn't meet like the requirements of people, then we can expand it out even further because of the databases they had. So it was very concise. Like we were gonna knock this out the park. Also excited posters, everything, right? So I did a presentation, send the emails, uh, day or two later, not gonna happen. I'm like, why? We have veterans, you know, like I think it was like four or 5% unemployment in the city of Chicago. And veterans in every category, associate's degrees, bachelor's, master's, compared to a civilian counterpart, had or on average 20% unemployment higher than the civilian counterpart. And that broke my heart. I couldn't believe it. That you had all this that was for free, flyover, banned, huge you know, support. Two things happened. One, it didn't happen because it didn't get Bob in front of the camera when he wanted to in a time frame. Number two, the Chamber of Commerce was under Republican leadership and he didn't want to show that he was working with the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. So those are the two reasons that job fair did not happen for, from what I was told. Wow. So, and that's the segue into veteran unemployment. Mm-hmm. So I have right now, I have the quick facts, census uh, numbers that are <clears throat> up here. This is a great tool if you really want to find out the numbers on you know where people are living, what they're making, blah, 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 blah. All you do is go to your Google machine, put in census, Chicago, quick facts, those three things. And you're going to get, you know, these are all estimates essentially, but you get the numbers and they break it down from like age and sex, race, uh, population, housing. And uh, I got to find the other stuff. So I want to bring in Carlos and Paul so they can start talking about the better their uh, experiences with unemployment. I want to pose a question to you is. When you hear job fairs now, they want to address veterans transitioning into the civilian life. So I was a plumber, right? Most of the stuff that we work on is cutting edge, you know, whatever your career field is. I was told numerous times that my experience uh, on active military, you know, doing his job was not, it was considered experience, but not, they wouldn't accept it. Even like our mm-hmm. education and stuff that would, it yep. wasn't accepted, you know, because it wasn't coming, you weren't coming from a four year university or you weren't working for some mom and pop, you know, internship because, you know, Uncle Chad got you a big break, you know, something like that. So what do you, how do you guys stand on that or what do you feel about that? No, I mean, absolutely. <clears throat> so I think that first there are challenges to that transition uh, for any veteran. 
um, you know, uh, the way the mil- any military branch works, um, it doesn't always tra- um, uh, transfer over to um, a job in the civilian world. And so um, people will question what you did for 10 years or for five years, for however long you were in the, in the service. And so it's hard just to be able to explain what your job was and then explain how that transfers over into skills. That's the first step. And so you're more most veterans have to go and get additional training. So some go to school, some go to uh, different trades and, and get back into the workforce. Um, I think that um, now and now as in now 2018 and you know, 2017, 2018, there's a bigger push to try and transition veterans into uh, the workforce in a way that's meaningful before there wasn't because to be frank, I don't think that the attention of what, uh, you know, the issues that veterans were going through was really paid. Uh, people didn't really pay attention to it. So now there's, I think there's a bigger, bigger push to kind of just, let's figure out some of these things like healthcare, right? Um, like, you know, uh, uh, mental health issues, um, unemployment issues, um, even homelessness, right? Um, and I want to point to a statistic I just read here. Um, if you go to um, uh, the, it's the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless, Right. Um, so they track um, every year the amount of people who are homeless in Chicago. And so out of um, uh, this is from 2016 uh, numbers, they have uh, about 20 percent of those folks who are homeless in Chicago are veterans. Right. And so I think that, again, you think about the service that most of these folks did uh, for this country and now they're homeless. Right. And so you go from unemployment to being homeless. Um, there's another um, uh, report that was done by uh, the University of um, uh, uh, goodness, USC School of Social Work, University of Southern California. Um, they partnered with Loyola University in Chicago. They did a report called The State of the American Veteran. And it, they basically studied um, the Chicago veterans in oh, the okay. city of Chicago. Oh. Um, you guys can look that up when you get a chance to, but there's a lot of really mm-hmm. good information in there about, they break that. down a lot of the different um, cross tabs into what veterans are thinking. How do you feel now that you're out of the service? Um, you know, what are your challenges to getting employment? And so I think that the first step again is getting the data. We have to understand what veterans are thinking and what, and what we want. <laughs> and then moving into how do we transition from, um, uh, the work you did in, in your in your branch of service to now working full time, yeah, and it, it that's so. One of the guys I was recruiting with, he was over in Oklahoma. And the guy was a he worked on the C one thirties, and the C one thirties after the you know government I think it was a Boeing or I think it was Boeing that made it plane or that airframe. So with the any of those aircrafts, they'll purchase the contract. And after a certain amount of times, that stuff is not manufactured and the Air Force typically has to make it themselves. So the airframe is, even though it's been bought, you know, there's not a big surplus. You can't go down to, you know, an auto zone and pick up a, you know, catalytic converter for a C-130 and throw that bad boy in, get the plane <laughs> off the ground. They physically have to make these tools or these parts themselves. Well, this guy did it for X amount of years, was a considered a, you know, top tier technician in that mm-hmm. career field but mm-hmm. and that's to someone working on an airframe you know leading edge there is no airframe and i'm pretty sure carlos can add on this with the avionics and stuff he's seen most commercial flights aren't pushing that kind of equipment not even close to it and then you'll have if mm-hmm. you tried to and i'm not sure if 
Carlos had <coughs> gone back into you know the avionics career field, I'm pretty sure they get a lot of you know giggles and chuckles at him because you know the civilians themselves want to they still have this like belief that they're trained and more knowledgeable than we are even though we've been working on the cutting edge tech but you want to yeah i mean that that um that happened to me i was a journeyman in avionics equipment on the fa-18 super hornet Mm -hmm. when i got out here that didn't matter i still had to go back to school to get an amp license if i wanted to do the things that i already did very well um and like you said yeah the you know the things that we had were are not um, the radars that I was working with are not radars that are found on commercial airlines. The weapon systems and you know the, the um, uh, weapon detection systems, the the infrared systems, they're a lot more advanced than what a lot of these civilian aircraft are using. And I still would have had to go back to school to uh, get that piece of paper that the civilian uh, workforce had that I didn't. Yeah. And so. When I figured out that I would have had to go back to school anyway, it was like, well, do I want to work inside or outside for the rest of my life? And Mm -hmm. I found psychology and it's like, you know what, Eh, that might lead to some good money, but eh, I think I'm done working outside, you know? Um, (laughs) And I'm I'm one who actively still works outside. I don't mind it. Uh, I I just can't be in one place at one time, but it's still shocking. And when I went back to school and I was transitioning or, you know, coming back into the workforce, quote unquote, it's hard to be in your 20s mm-hmm. sitting around a bunch of 18, 19 year olds that all they want to do is smoke dope and, you know, rage on the weekends and stuff like that. Like, hey, I'm married. I got kids. I'm trying to study. Can you keep, you know, those temptations away from me? I don't want to go to your damn party. Shut up. But So then and then even if you try to go, then you have the popular, you know, for profit universities like the Phoenix and a couple of them. And, and you see they're they're destroying veteran benefits and stuff like that, just mm-hmm. trying to get guys that not even their credits transfer over to and most they've been universities. Found, they've actually, some of those uh, schools have been found to really prey on veterans. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think it, last year there was a report um, showing how recruiters for those universities were going to VA hospitals where uh, the veterans didn't even have the capacity to uh, be enrolled in a class. And they were signing them up. Well, you know, it's the GI Bill money. Yeah. Um, they, they they tell the veterans, hey, you're going to get this much a month. And all you have to do is log into this, you know, online school. And, you know, they, they get that, you know, somebody to verify that their service and they get those, you know, they get that income. Mm-hmm. I mean, unfortunately for, um, you know, it's kind of that double-edged sword. As a veteran, you get these great benefits that if you're eligible for and you're able to take advantage of them, they can really help you out. Mm-hmm. On the other side, it also makes you, um, it makes you pray. Yeah. Right. Um, all of these, uh, you know, great business plans that, uh, understand mm-hmm. the benefits that veterans can bring, uh, to their organization. Just love it. Yeah. You know, and come mm-hmm. on in. What about you, Paul? Did you have any, going back to school, the transitioning stories, anything to add to it? No, I mean, definitely employers would ask questions, you know, well, what does this mean? <laughs> right. Um, well, what did you actually do? And so, you know, having just to explain um, the different um, uh, specialties that you had or the jobs that you did was the first hurdle. And then um, thinking, okay, well, 
do I now have to go back and like get a, a degree in something else? Should I should I go and now start training for the next three to four years to just get a full time job? And so I think thankfully there were um, there are different organizations. They're not headhunters, but they're companies that um, go out there and they take your um, all of your um, service time, and then they sit you up with jobs or companies. Um, uh, uh, so they're recruiters, right? They, so yeah. they set you up with companies that are actually looking for the skill sets that you have. And so I think that, you know, nowadays that's much more common. So again, people, they're doing a better job at trying to figure out, okay, this is the list of everything you did in the service. And here's where you would best fit if you want to just go ahead and go straight for a job full time without going to school. Oh, that's not too bad. Yeah. I want to say the... When I applied for the department, when I was unemployed, because you can get when you're 214, I don't know if you guys know this or anyone listening. So after you separate, you can collect unemployment almost immediately from the state of Illinois. You just got to mm-hmm. show your 214. So part of that is, and, and that's another thing too. So I know friends who were on were, uh, receiving unemployment funds the whole four years they were in school. You know, so I was like, oh, you can, I didn't know you can do that. That's great. You know, I got my GI Bill money, plus I can just claim unemployment. The state of Illinois was a hawk on me, calling me, auditing, you know, like I was off of unemployment benefits within a month, you know, because they were just that. I'm like, well, I'm taking full time classes. I'm looking for work that's, you know, after or something Mm -hmm. that's whatever. Like, no, you have to be, you know, to to take these benefits, you had to be available for work, essentially Monday through Friday, seven days a week, whenever they want, whatever they're thinking. I get it. They're trying to keep people on or off the, the benefits. But when I was on their website, they break it down. Like mm-hmm. what was your job in the military? A plumber and the stranglehold uh, that's here for plumbing, even though like I was a water license away from being a master plumber in the state of Florida, the state of Illinois and, and city of Chicago, they don't accept one, one day of it because you're, wow. you, yeah, yeah, not one day. Even though we work on in the state of you don't, really the only difference between um, Florida and um, Chicago is the, the source of the water. So it's all groundwater that they bring in. Whereas in Florida, we had well water. We mm-hmm. had purified, do it all and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. and then there's like elevation changes where you have to put in pumpings, pumps and stuff like that. So you have to know if I knew those because I had fire suppression underneath my belt as well. Well, more diversified and qualified than any street plumber. But you know, local 130 and, you know, the the veterans in piping or whatever that fancy thing is. I called them, too. That was kind of funny. They said that I was overqualified for the program. They wanted someone who <laughs> wasn't aware of anything to do with plumbing. So, wow, those are those those funky things about it. You know what I mean? And that's and I, then with that, can you imagine if you're already having some kind of mental health issues? And what I really want to wrap if you're listening to this and, and trying to the picture that we're trying to paint here is. You leave from the service after doing four, six, two years, whatever, depending on what your position was. Was it combat? Was it not? You were going to see some things. You know what I mean? Some things that you were ready for, some things you're not. Now take those years of experience that you have, then you come back to the civilian workforce. And, you know, then you're told, hey, you know, those avionics that are, you know, 20 years ahead of any system we're working with, we don't accept your, you know, we don't accept that. So you need to go back to school and start all over. You need to start your life essentially all over again. Right. And then, then you go back into school and then you're around drugs, alcohol, and everything that plagues college universities and stuff. And if you're already having some mental health things, you jump into that circle and then, you know, that spiral just deepens and tightens, you know? In, in, in that report, I talked about um, the state of the American veteran 
the Chicago, the Chicago land veteran study, um, they talk about how a third of Chicago veterans, um, have PTSD and 36% of veterans uh, in Chicago have depression. So, I mean, it's real, you know, you, you, you couple, uh, you know, unemployment, homelessness, PTSD, depression, um, you know, it's just difficult for, for, you know, one person to, to handle them. So, I think we just got to do a better job. I, I keep going back to that, but we have to do a better job of taking care of veterans. Well, I mean, kind of, you know, going back, I, I know that study pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've used it in um, several different ways. And one of the things that strikes me on there, and I don't have the exact figure, but I know it's a high one, is the number of veterans who feel uh, socially disconnected or connect disconnected from the world around them. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's... Um, you know, it, it goes back to that. I mean, th- that whole, uh, when you say, you know, what about these veteran uh, job fairs? Well, who shows up to the job fairs? Um, it's a lot of entry-level positions that, um, you know, a, a kid out of high school might be able to do and get into that is oftentimes low-paying. You know, like Walmart. They don't want veterans as managers. They want them stocking the shelves. Yeah. And, and they, get, they get a huge tax credit for that, too, for right. hiring a veteran. You know? Yeah. And, and so they, they, they love taking advantage of that, but they don't actually, you know, some of these guys and women have uh, had a lot of responsibility on them. I mean, one of the things I like to say is that if a change did not occur within the veteran, Uh, or within a military service member, we would not have the most powerful military that this world has ever seen, right? And a change occurs during your basic training, during your boot camp, whatever you want to call it, and you get indoctrinated into this um, culture, right? Whether it's the Air Force, the Army, the Navy, the Marine Corps especially, uh, you get indoctrinated into that culture and you carry that with you. Now, with that comes this sense of superiority, right? Like, man, we're taking over. We're, 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 you know, what is it? You know, knocking on doors, taking names, whatever, however yeah. you want to call it. You know, there, 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 there's a sense of I'm doing this great thing. And then you come out and everything is mundane, right? There's no longer like that sense of urgency that, that you know, lives depend on whether or not I torque this the right way. Yeah. Right. Um, it's, 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 um, uh, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, now what do I get to do? Right. I get to, you know, maybe stock a shelf. I get to, and that's not, you know, the experience for everyone. Um, but it's an experience that's all too common. And, you know, uh, is every veteran qualified to do some high level job? Of course not. Right. I mean, I, I always like to, to remind people that there's such a thing as an ASVAB waiver. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, ASVAB is armed service vocational aptitude battery. You got it's, it's basically an aptitude test to see if you can get in service or not, which is at a seventh grade level. And a lot of people fail. Right. You know, and that goes back to our education system and, you know, all, all of these different systems. Right. But but that exists. That's the real world that we live in. And so, you know, if a lot of these veterans, for whatever reason, and, and I've heard you know, a veteran's personal experiences, whether they were officers or enlisted, actually having better luck getting calls back for, for better positions when mm. they take the veteran status off of their resume. No kidding. Yes. And it's, um, you know, I, I had one who, uh, he's, he's an older veteran. He uh, retired as a captain in the Army, uh, Special Forces, did all of these, you know, uh, great <coughs> things. And he wasn't getting any calls back, like when he was out here. 
and uh, he had spoken to one person who was like, yeah, 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 you know, I'll give you a call. And, you know, basically threw his resume out in the garbage. Um, he took the veteran uh, or the military experience out of his resume and he said he started getting calls back. Mm. And about a year later, he was a guest speaker at an event where that same guy was at. And he was like, oh, hey, you know, nice to see you. I'm glad you, you know, found something. And he's like, what are you doing now? He's like, well, I'm a guest speaker here, so I'll let you know. You know? <laughs> yeah. And it's like, well, wait a minute. So there's that stigma attached to it for whatever reason. Whether they think mm-hmm. that the, the veteran is, is, is flawed or, like you said, mentally ill. I mean, I don't know that I'd consider it mentally ill. It's just, you know, people have less productive uh, coping mechanisms for that, inherit, for that change that occurred through military service. The number, so the number you were looking. So you talked. You talked about the uh, I feel disconnected from the world around me. That's right. the um, the quote. So the percentage here is um, post nine eleven veterans. Forty eight point five percent of them in the city of Chicago feel disconnected, and then twenty two point six percent of the pre nine eleven mm-hmm. veterans feel disconnected. So I think it's a significant number. Yeah. I mean, well, um, I mean, the sample size on that, if I'm not mistaken, was maybe right around two thousand. So I mean, mm-hmm. that's almost a thousand people in that sample. Mm-hmm. Who felt like that? Mm-hmm. See, you that's know, why I had these guys on here. Look at it. They're not only talking numbers, and then he broke down into the samples. How big was because <laughs> right. everyone loves using exactly. polls and this, that, the third, but you have to understand how many people were polled. Mm-hmm. Exactly. How what was their methodology? You know what I mean? Yeah. Political science is called political science for a reason. There's math behind it. There's that's studies. Right. You have to approach it. But then you'll have like the Tribune who's being pushed by, you know, whoever, whatever. Oh, we ran this poll. Well, who did you call? You know what I mean? Are you taking this from a consultant that has, you know, that's using uh, MGR or whatever to ban and they're systematically picking Democrats within a specific, yeah, Mm -hmm. NGP, yeah. So, and and Carlos pointed to one more thing too that I wanted to mention that the whole, you know, like mental illness thing. So it's like people have this stigma, this negative stigma around, um, you know, mental illness um, and mental health. And so, and and I'm going to just do a quick side note here that, I think there's a dangerous narrative that's being done um, that's happening around the country where, you know, all of a sudden, like these people who are doing terrible things like, you know, shooting up schools and and doing mass killings, like as if mental illness is the driving factor behind it. And so I work with the disability rights community. Right. And so this is something that to them, it's offensive because there's a Mm -hmm. lot of folks who have um, (coughs) who are actually uh, dealing with mental health issues that are not violent. The vast majority of people who are getting um, help or treatment for mental health issues are not violent people. Right. And so I think that we have to, I, I for one, I'm always very defensive um, for both mil- military veterans, people with disabilities and folks who have um, uh, 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 issues with mental health that these are not violent people. There are like nine or 10 different factors that go into somebody committing like a mass amount of um, violence, a whole bunch of different factors. And so one of which could be mental health, Right. But and, and so I, I think that when Carlos, you mentioned, you know, the mental health illness, I'm like, yes, we have to talk about it in a way that makes sense. But that doesn't drive a negative narrative to or towards um, people who are actually getting treatment for mental health as if they're like the bad guys out there. And, and you know, to that point, um, you know, the U.N. has a definition of child soldier uh, that says uh, a child soldier is a child that takes part to actively fight a war. Right. Um, what. Well, Excuse me. I misspoke. That's the wrong one. Um, that's what happens when you just Google it. What, what, anyway, the, what? No, no, I was just going to take in some time while you were uh, mm-hmm. discussing. I just wanted to, to, while you're looking at that, finding that, finalizing that, 
me, I'm like I said, diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and I am not a violent person as well. And I get huge and I'm right when they say, oh, well, it's all these, you know, these veterans with issues or everyone who has a mental health issues. And, And it's funny, too, because when I talk about mental illness or I talk about, you know, disabilities that come from all that stuff like that. Mm-hmm. People look at me strangely because, oh, well, how can you advocate for this? How can you speak about that? That's not you. Like, no, I am clinically diagnosed <laughs> with post-traumatic stress disorder. I go through mindfulness. I was supposed to take medications, but then because right. of the suicidal things and everything, I'm off of that stuff. But I am someone who's clinically diagnosed, but am functioning in society. You know, we are like that. Right. You know what I mean? You don't, you're not... I don't want to say it like you're like, uh, you know, the batshit crazy or whatever like that. Where, <laughs> right. You know, uh, one of the most offensive things, there's a dude running a the, it's the heal our rights campaign of Jesse Brown. Mm. Um, he's leading right to, right to heal. Yeah. So the first time I meet this guy, the joke and he's not a veteran, he just has a bunch of like veterans he surrounds himself with. He tells me the joke of how many veterans it take to change a light bulb. What's his name? I don't want to say this okay. thing. Uh, yeah. I don't want to give him. I don't want to give him the credit. Blast. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. No. Um, but he says, "How many veterans <laughs> does it take to change a light bulb?" And before, like, I opened my mouth, he screams in my face, "You weren't there." You know, it's, it's a, a Vietnam yeah. reference. You know what I mean? That's nuts. Yeah, well, and I sit there. I'm like, it took me a second to realize that, and then like me, I got. I've been on. He's blocked me from social media because he keeps putting on this like right to heal stuff, and and where he's at, <laughs> how are you, especially with that. Uh, and when you talk to people who've in uh, uh, the DSA, they had a event over here, not to the Democratic Socialists of America. They had an event over at mm-hmm. uh, Bernice's and they booted his ass out when he came in there trying to talk veteran issues and stuff like that, because they know he's just tokenizing um, veterans for, you know, the event or whatever. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I, I just wanted um, I just wanted to talk about um, kind of put it into context in that. You know, we, I feel like there's this assumption that a person went into the military, you know, with a quote unquote perfect bill of health, uh, mental health of, you know, all of these different things. And, you know, um, it was only during their service that they were negatively affected by experiences when in fact, you know, I was, what I was alluding to with the child soldier part is that, you know, we using a definition that I, I, I um, can't find in front of me right now. Uh, there are more child soldiers in our urban cities yes. than there are when you in countries where you might, you know, think a child soldier exists. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all of that has trauma related to it, because what do we know about trauma is that it affects the person who witnesses it, who perpetu- or who perpetrates it, who experiences it. Uh, it has an effect. Right. And so if you grew up in Chicago in the 90s, you remember that the, oh, yeah. there was all there was plenty of things going on. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all of those things didn't get erased when you enlisted. Right. They, you know, things just compounded after that. Yeah. Right. And so what was it in the military? If you had a problem, what'd you do? Suck you, it up. Exactly. Right. You didn't go to medical. You you, you didn't go talk to the chaplain because you might lose your clearance. You might not be mm-hmm. able to do your job. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Depending on what it is, you might not be able to carry a weapon. And be on suicide watch. Right. right? Yeah. Be on suicide mm-hmm. watch. Right. And, and there's that whole stigma attached to that. So, you know, these things didn't occur in a bubble and, yeah. and they just continue to add on. And so if you're not getting the uh, adequate and appropriate care, right? 
uh, because we, we you said you mentioned you know asking for help right but what does that help actually look like mm-hmm. right i mean i think it's different for everyone what you uh joe do to uh, cope with you know any stressors that might be associated with your ptsd uh, might be different than how you know your neighbor handles it than how mm-hmm. i would handle mm-hmm. it and you know any of that yep. so when you try to go into these systems that use this cookie cutter approach you know we're bound <laughs> to find mm-hmm. a lot of negative outcomes for sure right? and and this is what we're talking about here this is just and it goes in majority I, I don't have the numbers but majority of the veteran force is is white um and it's affecting all races across it so it's not like they're just picking on you know certain people and we have racial racial uh, racial bias and prejudices that are here in the country as it is but this is coming across the veterans as well and it's hitting all the racial lines and the the issues that we're talking about here these are ones who have who, who have a clear dd form 214 uh, these are ones who have not been um you know deported out of the country and that segues away me uh, segues us into you know, one of the last topics we're going to talk about Mm-hmm. Uh, General Mathis, I don't know if you've seen this, Military Times put it out, naturalizations <coughs> dropped 65% for service members seeking citizenship after Mathis memo. So this is recent. This is May 3rd. And I, it, so when I was recruiting someone who is not a citizen, as long as they're in the process, essentially, they mm-hmm. can still serve the country. And it, it it's on, and I'm not sure how the Marines or Navy and Army were with their uh, quotes or their their guidelines towards it, but they had to have, you know, some kind of progress before their enlistment is over, mm-hmm. or they get to boot out of the service, and you know that's how the Air Force seeks the non-citizen status. So essentially, um, General Mathis under Donald Trump wrote out a memo that. Um, and this is a military times article came out may 3rd and in the first set of data available since the new policy the numbers of applicants dropped from 3132 in the last quarter of fiscal year 2017 to 1069 in the first quarter of the fiscal year of 2018 the most recent that's the most recent data available Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of members or there's a lot of people who join the service to serve the country Put, I guess, put their work in or whatever, and then, get, you know, become citizens. But there's the significant trials that come after it. And Carlos can give me a little bit more on this because he's been very active on the deported veterans uh, initiatives and actually advocating for one. Can you tell us a little bit of, fill us in on your work on that front? Yeah, so um, I'm an immigrant from Mexico. I, you know, my dad was a Marine, but you know, definitely the uh, immigrant experience is um, something I can appreciate a little bit more than a general population. Um, and so, you know, we have this notion, uh, this yellow ribbon notion, right? Support the troops. And, and you know, it's really uh, saddening how conditional that mantra <clears throat> really is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, we have these... Uh, veterans who, uh, whether they served in combat or not, right? I, I think we talked about earlier how the um, there is a change that occurs within the service members that allows for our military to to have the strength that it does, right? And that change comes in many different ways and it's different, but you know there is that change. And so we have these individuals <coughs> who. Um, 
you know, served in the military. I think the last number I saw was nearly a thousand DACA recipients within our military. Um, but I know that in the Navy, you didn't have to be going through the process of citizenship to be in. As long as you didn't uh, require security clearance, you're fine, right? Um, I actually uh, had somebody in my first squadron uh, who was denied citizenship for a crime that he committed that he was found guilty of while he was a minor. Um, so, you know, there's, there was definitely that. Um, but, um, you know, like we said, there's this compounded trauma, right, that, that occurs through one person's life, especially, you know, the immigrant experience is, is you know, difficult for a lot of people. And so then you add the military service and all of the things that we have, all of those phenomenon that we are observing now. And then you come out mm-hmm. to that lack of resource, mm-hmm. right? That, 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 that uh, lack of connectedness to your community, the self-isolation, the uh, coping mechanisms that are not very uh, productive out, you know, the, the substance use and abuse, right? All of these things that, have put service members and veterans into jail for different things, right? Um, whether it be DUIs, whether it be bar fights, you know, things that were uh, laughed about in many circles in the military. But you've got this small proportion of the veteran community who, for whatever reason, did not gain citizenship, right? Whether it was they mm-hmm. didn't apply for it, um, and that's usually the case in, in the things that I've, uh, the cases that I've uh, witnessed. But then they get themselves into trouble, right, with the legal system. Now, if you are a citizen veteran, a lot of these behaviors can be looked at or are recognized as red flags. Hey, that veteran is going through some stuff. They need some resources. They need help. Sign them up for vocational rehabilitation. Increases level of disability. Uh, do all of these things that would provide that veteran with the support that he needs to stop getting arrested. Right? <laughs> you stop that. Right. You know? <laughs> but now we have this veteran who was recently deported, uh, served in Afghanistan at the very beginning. So 2002 and 2003 with special forces. Um, so he was attached to, I think it was a uh, <clears throat> forces group. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Records weren't really kept back then, right? So his Jeez. experience and the, 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 what I've heard him describe mm-hmm. um, somewhat is, is definitely something that uh, would be considered very traumatic, okay? Mm-hmm. And when he came out of the military, there were those limitations. I mean, he got out in 2004, and mm-hmm. quite frankly, we were still so concerned about getting into war that we didn't really pay attention to those who were already coming back. Mm-hmm. And so, as we're very aware, uh, that lack of social connectedness and you know the stigma that's attached to uh, um, the, the symptoms that, are, that uh, occur because of their conditions uh, led this person to uh, incarceration. And the ironic thing is that he wasn't able to get the support he needed, including uh, disability, uh, service-connected disability, until he was in state prison, right? That's, that's when he got the help that he, uh, that he needed, right? Started attending school there, right? Getting, you know, doing the groups. It was finally on medication that was being monitored. But because 
his uh, crime of um, basically being a mule. He was convicted as though he was a kingpin. Mm-hmm. And he had poor representation in legal defense who uh, advised him to plead guilty, uh, not taking into consideration that he would have, uh, that that would have been a deportable offense. Mm-hmm. And right before he was released from state prison, he was picked up by ICE. Mm-hmm. And so after a seven and a half year stretch for um, basically feeding his substance use habit, uh, he ended up uh, spending another about 18 months in ICE detention mm-hmm. uh, where he lost his access to medication. Um, and so uh, hope, luckily he had some advocates that were able to get that uh, redone. <clears throat> but he was definitely not treated for, as somebody who uh, fought for this country. And to top it off, uh, his actual deportation, uh, when they finally did deport him, it, it was just horrible. They didn't follow the protocol <laughs> that they usually do. So they usually tell the families, hey, hey we're going to deport this person within a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. bring them a day bag, bring them IDs, bring them money, whatever it is that they might need on the other side. Not only did they not do that for this individual, uh, they also they, they basically disappeared him. They didn't tell him he was being moved. They just cut his access to funds. So because of that, he was able to uh, understand what was going to happen. And he was able to use other people's accounts to, to make the calls that was needed and basically warn people. But, you know, there there is a community of veterans that exists in Tijuana, Bajo California, it's, you know, south of uh, San Diego. And the prosecutors, the ICE prosecutors actually brought that up during his case. They said, well, he's got nothing to worry about. There, there's, you know, veterans over there that are going to help him, right? And <laughs> they, they, they literally said that. And so... They knew this. Obviously, ICE was very aware that this existed. So what did they do when they deported him? They deported him to the other side of the country, to Matamoros, Mexico, where we currently have a travel ban to. So our State Department recognizes that, hey, this this part of that country is mm-hmm. uh, bad enough that we want our, our, our citizens to stay away from, right? Government employees have a curfew there. Um but yet we're going to take this person who, who fought in Afghanistan, right, under this, this, this guise of, of, of protecting freedom, our freedoms, and they dump him with literally a half-ripped potato sack with some of the toiletries he was able to grab out of his jail cell and in his jail uh, clothes. So they didn't even let him get, you know, regular, as we call them, civvies, right? They, yeah. they tossed him out in that. And so... It goes back to what I was saying about this support the troops mantra being conditional, right? Why is it that, you know, a behavior that would um, be beneficial to one veteran's uh, claims, if you will, for more support Hmm. end up being detrimental to another veteran's, right? Because he didn't come out of, of prison and get the increase in disability that he deserves, right? Because even while you're in prison, there's a limit to how much you can receive. So he didn't get that. He, you know, for the time that he was here in ICE detention, it was that ICE detention that prohibited the VA or him accessing any of the benefits that he was, uh, uh, that he is 
uh, eligible to receive as a disabled veteran. Yeah. Right. So it's the very same systems that he fought to protect that are uh, really detrimental to his and his family's health and well-being. Yeah. And Paul, do you yeah. want I, I don't want to give out too much of your uh, your background, but I believe you have a. You can tie into this as well. I mean, I, I have three three quick comments to make to what Carlos said. First of all, and I, I think um, we're living in a very troubling era where xenophobia and anti-immigrant ideology is, is pervasive in um, social right? social and political uh, discourse. And I think that we really have to find a way to have a discussion about, um, you know, uh, immigration in a way that is, um, you know, uh, true to what, you know, America's foundations are. We're a country of immigrants. And so to what Joe said, yes, I also came here as a refugee with my parents and my family when I was young to the U.S. and became permanent residents and eventually a naturalized um, citizen. And so I understand, you know, I understand the, you know, the, the transition of coming from a country um, uh, that is war-torn or under civil war and then having to uh, assimilate or, you know, make the, uh, make the effort to assimilate and then um, be a part of um, American society. So as, you know, as immigrants, that's a story in itself, right? And so I, I, to speak to, the, um, uh, to your friend, uh, the veteran who was deported, I think, I, I, first of all, I think that's just, it's, it's a backwards uh, uh, thing that happened. Um, if anything, we should be doing the best that we can to uplift and support all of our veterans, especially the ones who sign up to serve in whichever branch they go to um, and then fulfill what they, they said they're going to do. We as a country should be backing them up. Um, both from citizenship, right, and to also supporting afterwards with all the needs that are, that are that with all the veteran services that are needed afterwards. And so, and I, the last thing I want to say is that I think what ties into this is that um, it's again the era we're living in, right? Um, there's a, a really good article written by um, uh, a journalist named Adam Davidson. It's called "Debunking the Myth of the Job Stealing Immigrant." I think this hits to like the core of what people are talking about. It's like people who are somehow xenophobic are worried that, you know, resources are going to, we're going to lose resources because more immigrants are coming into this country. Let me read a line from this article real quick. It says immigrants don't just increase the supply of labor. They simultaneously increase demand for it using the wages they earn to rent apartments, eat food, get haircuts, buy cell phones. So it's productive. More people working are going to spend more money. It's just simple economics, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you take that away, you're going to have, a, like, it's going to be the opposite of that, right? Yeah. And so this idea that immigrants are coming here and somehow destroying the economy, it's just, it's backwards. It's, it's a myth. And um, I, I think that we really have to wrap our heads around, like, being much more um, um, civil, in our discourse. And a wild thing is, there's a documentary on Netflix. I started watching yesterday, but I ended up going, going out for a meeting, so I didn't get to finish it. But they, it was about uh, Italians' perception of American cuisine. And I, I think it's kind of ironic because I'm, mm. we're eating pizza. And <laughs> they basically slammed. So, and in, Stella. And Stella, yeah. So they, um, 
in Italian cuisine, like spaghetti and meatballs, like like in Americans, you think, oh, yeah. Italians eat spaghetti and meatballs. Mm-hmm. But when you go back to a traditional Italian diet, it has nothing to do. There's very little meat that's in there. If it is, it's seafood, mm-hmm. uh, but, but just a perversion of it. And the same rhetoric, so it's not necessarily, it's the same, uh, the same rhetoric of immigrants are coming to take our jobs was, they're showing like travel videos and stuff like that from the 30s, 40s when they were coming, you know, people were coming over, um, you know, the, you know, one thing they, so like down in the South, while African-Americans were being lynched, Italians were being lynched as well because mm-hmm. they were coming to take jobs. And that's something you don't hear about. Mm-hmm. Um, so because of this immigrants are coming for us. And what I want to close out with this last thing, Carlos brought us up. Anytime you listen to a commercial or one of those promotional things, veterans are fighting for our freedom. That's mm-hmm. one thing that continuously being is being said, but I disagree with that. We do not fight for freedom. We fight <laughs> to protect the constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. So when you have a bunch <coughs> of ragtag individuals who are trained to fight in warfare, um, finding out that they are that their community is under attack and that our constitution, what they swore to support and defend, is under attack. You want to remind them that they are fighting for freedom. You don't want them to know that or to hear that they're supposed to support that. And then it was a great it was, it was short-lived, especially during uh and during a Callan Kaepernick, mm, you know, mm-hmm, days mm-hmm. of I loved it, man. There was a response because right away Republicans jumped on in there saying, you know, he's disrespecting our troops. And then all on Twitter, all the hashtag veterans for Kaepernick. And they, there was this veteran uh, jump behind it that, no, we are, you know, the black community, the brown community is is under attack by, you know, by the police thing. And I have a lot of friends who are cops that do listen to this podcast. I'm pretty sure I'm going to get texts and phone calls after this. But we just we agree and we disagree because. There's one thing that they talk about is that the oath that we take as a military member versus what an oath a policeman takes are the same thing. And I wholeheartedly disagree. You are not taking <laughs> that same oath. It is to support and defend against you know, the Constitution. You are not doing that. And I can go into the full history of the Chicago police and show you evidence that you are not. You technically are, by that definition or that oath, we are at ends. You know, we're you are the domestic side of it. Technically, you know what I mean? If you pervert the U.S. Constitution based on inequalities or whatever, you are technically that domestic enemy that we are supposed to come after. Um, The militias they talk about and stuff like that, that the NRA likes talking about, that's National Guard. It's not their ragtag teams of three percenters or whatever they want to call themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, A bunch of guys in in, costumes running around the woods, but they didn't have the balls to actually put a damn uniform on. You know what I mean? So that's where I think we, you know, all the things that we discussed today and to I'll let Carlos and Paul talk about this as well. But I think us as veterans, if we started understanding that, that, you know, we are all screwed. Not only can we address issues in the civilian sector because their inequalities and all sorts of stuff like that, that they have specifically are towards like one group, like with the immigration stuff, they're coming specifically after Mexican or Central and South America descent. They call it MS-13, right? Yeah, MS-13, yeah. <laughs> that was created in the United States and yeah, yeah, and whatever. But they're going specifically after that. You know what I mean? But then when you start tagging in all the other veteran issues that they come after, or you know, it's hitting white, black, brown, um, Asian, everybody. It's hitting. Anybody so, that doesn't have a trust fund. Yeah, basically. So that's that that statement that fighting for freedom, I, I did, like I said, I disagree with it. What is your... As, uh, you guys? 
I mean, good. I, I, I could talk about the, I think that we're definitely fighting for defending a certain way of life, but is it freedom? We have the most people incarcerated anywhere in the world. How is this a, um, mm -hmm. definitely not fighting for freedom. Uh, it's, a, it's a way of life that, yes, it provides opportunity, um, provides uh, the opportunity for upward mobility, mm -hmm. but you have to have certain bootstraps that aren't handed out uh, at the border and they're not handed out <laughs> at uh at the uh, you know local community levels uh they're bootstraps that you know yes you get some bootstraps to the military um, but it comes with a lot of different you know, strings attached to it right i mean i don't know that i would have been ready or even explored a PhD program had it not been for uh, some of the uh, opportunities that came through military service. Um, but was it freedom that we were fighting for? No, I think that's just a you know, war cry that we love to yell about. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely fighting for a certain way of life. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll just say uh, two quick things. I know we're out of time almost, right? Yeah. Um, very quickly, I would say that it's just, for me, it's just very simple. You know, we're fighting for um, what said, what it, what we've heard for years in history, right? That all people are created equal um, and that they're endowed with by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So whatever that means. Right. I can't define that for anybody else. So that's what we got to strive for, pushing those things. And and do do we have a, a real quick second for me to mention one more thing? The very last thing I want to say, and, and this is something that isn't talked about very quickly. We talked about health and, and, and post-traumatic stress and other things, unemployment. I think that this is something that ha is the defining factor for what we have to do as both as leaders and as, as, as men in the military, right, is the Me Too in the military. We don't talk about it. Yeah. I have way too many friends who are close to me who have gone through experiences that have just been very, very devastating and nothing's happened, right? There's no consequences for it. Um, there's something called real quick. And those of you who are listening can go to this protect, um, protect our defenders.com has, um, a report. It's called military sexual assault fact sheet. Um, and, and as of 2015, uh, 47,000, uh, sexual assaults were reported against service members across all uh, the different branches. And so this is crazy. The numbers have remained the same since 2010, right? Nothing's changed. And so something has to happen, right? The culture has to change where we're respecting one another. And this is from, this, these are reports from men and women, victims. Mm -hmm. So something has to change. You know, we, we gotta be able to, we have to, if you think about the corporate world, any other, in, in schools, in other places, the moment something happens that's even close to being offensive or, um, um, you know, sexual discrimination, gender assault, you're fired or you're suspended. So there's no reason why we shouldn't at least try to um, create a culture where people can feel safe um, in the workplace. If you want to serve, if you want to serve as in the military, you should feel safe and not have to feel threatened that someone or some superior somewhere is going to come over there and, and you know, Rape you? yeah, yeah, right. Anything, yeah. right. All of it. 
and it's weird too. And I got to bash the Navy on this one. So in basic training, they have uh, the stress cards that they can bring out. Um, never, yeah. You know, that was never. Probably, it, it was even, uh, that, that was the, uh, uh, that was the big foot even when I was in. You know, yeah. I got out, after I got out of boot camp, you know, I had been in the, the fleet a couple of years. I, I heard about that, but I don't think I've actually met anybody that uh, yeah. corroborates that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, so, and that report comes from, uh, the, the Department of Defense um, the um, Sexual Assault Prevention Response Office asked the RAND National Defense Research Institute to conduct an independent survey to find out what's going on. So that's where this report comes from. Um, if anybody wants to look that up. Mm-hmm. And so we were at one hour and 30 minutes. I think that's a good that's a good spot to leave us off. So I want to appreciate I greatly appreciate the work that Carlos is doing, that Paul is doing, there's veterans that are out there that we do operate normally in society that are succeeding at things, even though we've have overcome certain circumstances to get where we're at, we're able to do that. But also there's individuals that aren't as lucky, you know, and we have to put, and it's not, it's not that you have to bash at anybody, but it, we have to be responsibly critical and say something is not right, something is not working, and have a discussion. Like, I shouldn't be able to bring up veteran suicides or uh, naturalization issues, deportation issues, and then, or even talk about Colin Kaepernick and police brutality, and then, oh, you're disrespecting veterans and stuff like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, without it, we need to start having these conversations, and I'm glad you two are out in the community doing some great things. So, um I appreciate everyone who listened today. I appreciate Bernardo and Daniel for sitting in today with us. Uh, they wanted to learn more about the podcast stuff. Uh, so we had a full house in the kitchen. Um, awesome. You could have been anywhere today. You were here. You're with us. Listen to veteran <laughs> stuff. Not what anyone else told you, but I greatly appreciate <laughs> you. Thank you. And uh, share, share, share on social media. I don't see enough people sharing on social media. So please do that. I know if you like it, I got over a thousand people listening. Share it. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.